This episode is brought to you by Rockstar Energy Drink. Be honest, are you procrastinating by listening to this podcast? It's okay. You just need Rockstar Focus. Choose from three delicious flavors, each crafted with ingredients for an ideal energy and mental boost, like lion's mane, 200 milligrams of caffeine, and zero sugar. Visit rockstarenergy.com to learn more. At least 75 milligrams of caffeine has been shown to help improve attention. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week I have an absolute treat for you. This interview is one of my favourites to record so I really hope you enjoy it. Joining me in the studio is the British actress, presenter and author Joanna Lumley. Born in India in Kashmir, Srinagar, she was brought up in the Far East, coming to the UK aged eight to attend boarding school. She went on to work as a modern actress, living in London in the swinging 60s and made her name starring as Purdy in The New Avengers. She boasts a successful career spanning over six decades. She had audiences in Hysterics as Patsy in hit sitcom Absolutely Fabulous, has presented wonderful travel programmes and, of course, captured the nation in Jan Etherington's radio show, Conversations from a Long Marriage, in which she stars alongside Roger Allen. In this episode, we talk about why she doesn't have a mobile phone, how difficult she found it to shed the pretty girl stereotype when she moved from modelling to acting, and why she wishes sex scenes would be cut from TV and film. Joanna Lumley, welcome Thank to the you. Radio Times podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you so much for having well, me. Well, I have just told you how beautiful you are, but I think this is going to be such a treat for our listeners because your voice is like honey. Oh, stop. <laughs> I tell you whose voice is like honey and who most of the people who approach me say, look, you sound all right, but Roger Allen is the one we love. <laughs> oh, he does have and a so nice this voice. Was, this was just extraordinary. So... um so I've been thrilled to be paired with him. But anyway, I also do a lot of uh, voiceovery things. And I think you have to become more conscious of your own voice. Mm. But when it's fitted onto something else, you've got to fit in with things. And so you are aware of it. Because usually we, we all speak when we speak. We don't listen to ourselves. Mm -mm. You've no idea what you sound like. No. So it's always been a shock when people have said kind things. So I've thought, hurrah. <laughs> So thank you. You're so very welcome. Okay, this conversation goes a bit everywhere. We're going to talk about your TV viewing habits, a bit about your career, and mm. of course, conversations mm. from a long marriage. Mm. Uh, let's start with, what is the view from your sofa? Talk me through your living room setup. Um, a fireplace, 
So, so first sitting facing a fireplace, open fire. Oh. Yeah. Our house is very <laughs> tall. It's about five stories tall. And I thought if anybody is going to actually stand outside to see if smoke's coming out of the chimney, we deserve to be arrested. I love I love open fires. We don't have them very often. Um, book, lots and lots of bookshelves, bookshelves on each side of the fire, bookshelves behind us, and paintings more than literally frame to frame up to the ceiling. I've got a passion for paintings. More bits and pieces. I'm a maximalist rather than minimalist. Very nice. And my husband's very patient. And we have um, s- sort of stuff, kind of a lot of stuff. So if you can find your way into the room, you can sit down comfortably. And there is a television set, and rather in a rather bourgeois manner, I keep it covered up because I don't like flat black screens mm. because I'm. I think that it's rather odd. And I haven't yet got to the stage where people quite cleverly have their television screen, which turns into a picture. Until you switch it on. Yeah. Have you seen that? I have seen so it's that. It's kind of a picture. It's very trendy. So anyway, I have mine behind a, cu- a cupboard door so I don't have to see it. And when you do watch TV, what mm. have you enjoyed watching most recently? Oh, literally everything. I adore <laughs> traveling things. And so mm. I do travel programs and I watch Simon Reeves. So I think he's just great. I love um, what I call my a sort of special pain television, which is watching things like The Apprentice. And first date, anything that makes you absolutely curl with embarrassment and horror. I love those. Is that, would you say, a, a guilty pleasure almost? No, it's not guilty at all. I'm quite brazen about it. I <laughs> simply adore it. That's why they make them, is for people to go, oh my heavens, how can this person who's boasted about something get hit so badly wrong on television? I think they're sort of agonizing. But actually, we've bought a box set. This sounds quite strange, but it's our viewing habits. We've bought a box set of all. Shakespeare's plays, which were done by the BBC. Oh, wow. Um, back starting in the 70s and 80s. And they're sensational because I realize I know a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of Shakespeare plays, and not all of them. And a lot of them you think you know and you see them again. And when they've got directors like Jonathan Miller and all the actors you can possibly imagine from mm. John Gilgus to everybody you can possibly love, they're magic. Do you have a favorite? I pretty much like Twelfth Night, yeah. Okay. Mm. Hmm, interesting. Why? That's, that's not my favourite. What's your favourite? I love, I watched a, an adaptation of Coriolanus with Ray Fiennes in. That's my favourite film adaptation. I but think my, my favourite was Romeo and Juliet with DiCaprio. With Basler. I love Claire. that. That's one Basler, of my all-time favourites. very, very good. Should show that in schools for children who think Absolutely. they don't like Shakespeare. It's so beautiful and that fish tank scene is just mm. iconic. Mm. And I also love Julius Caesar. That's my, that's oh. my hand on heart favourite. That was my... O-level English, I think. What a Julius treat. Caesar, yeah. And at the time, the film out was Brutus, played by um, James Mason, Marlon Brando as Mark Antony. Oh, my Extraordinary, goodness. yeah. Wow, Good. that's an exceptional part. Who controls the remote in your household? Is it you or your husband? We don't sort of live like that. No? No. Sometimes he's in a different room watching cricket. <laughs> so we, we don't have to do that, you know what I mean? Not a cricket fan? I like cricket, but but... All day cricket. I sometimes go in and see how, how well it's going. You get to you get fond of what your partner likes, and so I've become fonder of, uh, you know, racing, car mm. racing, because he likes that, and so I know the, you know, all the cars and things like this. But we don't really. We watch television, but we read a lot and we listen. He's a musician, so we don't. You know, we're not ruled by the box. Yes. What about radio? What's your favourite radio show? I don't know if I've actually got a favourite show. Uh, I 
I don't really know if I have one. I like to listen to Desert Island Discs mm. only because I pray they'll get some fabulous music on. Quite often they have quite a lot of modern music, you know, recent yes. pop tunes and things, which I don't know. Well done them. I like uh, Michael Barclay's show at 12 o'clock called Private Passions. That's my favourite one. That's very nice. And is there a station that you 3. like? Yeah, a Radio 3, Radio 4. I like bits of, I like to chop and change if I can, remember where th- what time things are on and catch mm. them. Do you just have it on in the background a lot? No, I don't like things in the background. I listen to them or turn them off. I don't like background music. Either I listen to the music or not have it on. Oh, okay. I like that. And also it means you're present or you're engaging with it properly rather mm. than I think we live in a world of phones Well, I think now. it's very different now because I know a lot of children do their homework and prep and essays, I guess, with music on in the background. I can't think how you where, where your mind would be mm. with music I mean, either, either it's good me or it's wallpaper music which is banned in our house banned <laughs> it's so ghastly it comes on on every show if you watch anything they've got this sort of Background, library music yes. ging, 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 ging. it's just a nightmare <laughs> okay let's take it back to uh childhood so you were born in india in kashmir Srinagar, but you were brought up in the far east and mm. then you came back to england yeah. aged eight what was your childhood like um, an army child, so my sister and I went wherever my parents went because my father served with the Gurkhas. And so when we left India, we went out to Hong Kong. When we left Hong Kong, we went to what is now Malaysia. Wow. But it was completely normal. Children think things are normal. Mm. They, Whatever happens to a child, they think it's normal. Mm. So although we did enormous journeys to and fro, I did five times across the world in troop ships, taking a month or five weeks each time. Wow. And that's because nobody flew in those days because army children didn't fly. Um, so it, it was a different way of being, you know. It's mm. so long ago that it's it's become history and people can't imagine it. Nobody had telephones or made telephone calls. You wrote letters. You waited for a letter and you wrote a letter back again. Um, I dreaded telephones and I still don't use a telephone now. I won't use a mobile phone. Really? No, I won't receive calls. won't have it. Waste of life. Waste of time. How do people communicate with you? Do you have a landline? If there's a landline at home, mm. I pick it up. I say, hello. No, I mean, what I, <laughs> what I mean is I can't stand being on call. Yes. I can't see the point in it. How do you live your life if you're always reacting? And how can you have your own fresh ideas and thoughts if you're always responding to something? And that feels to, you know, I grew up in... I think I'd probably had my first phone at about 10. And that was only because I was doing kind of extra work on TV and my parents would let me have it so I could message in the in the break, just let them know how I was doing. But I feel like I was probably the last age that grew up or had part of my childhood or teenage years without a phone. Mm. And that now to a younger audience would be... I know far away and I don't think for the best. I think there is a real beauty in, in being present, being able to communicate. I can't see the point in them. I know no. people say you've got to keep checking up. You haven't. Nobody checked up. You don't have to, you don't have, to have them. If you're without them, people ha- they're addicted. That's the sad thing is we've fed this addiction in um, and people seem to think that now it's, it's very important to know what your child's doing all the time. I think I'd have had a fit if having left <laughs> home. My parents, I could not have loved more. I adored them so much, were always checking up on me, always ringing up, always finding out where I was, always knowing who I was with. I can't think of anything more crippling, mm. more debilitating to a young mind than being checked up on all the time. Do you think that moving around a lot and having that slightly nomadic lifestyle early on prepared you for acting? Because it's not 
a job where there is security, no matter how successful you are, there is an element where you're moving a lot. And I and I guess I'm also asking, where do you feel is home? Well, when we were children, home was wherever there was a little Chinese rug my mother had for us children and a picture of a squirrel and a picture, I think, of Mrs. Tiggy Winkle. And as little, little children, wherever those two things were, that was home, so it didn't matter. Um, so I've, I'm at home. I, I like to feel I'm at home anywhere. Mm. Settle in and when you're traveling. The SAS always say, make yourself, even if you've only got a pile of stones or something, make it a special space and be there. Make yourself comfortable on a tree trunk or something. Make yourself at home. So I've never thought. I've And also as a child, because my parents never had a home, they were both brought up in India and we were all peripatetic. Um, I've never felt a kind of yearning f- no, that's wrong. You you have home, but I don't think of somewhere as home, if you know what I mean. Mm. I don't know if it's important. Mm. And I don't think traveling makes you an actor. I think an awful lot of our best actors didn't Still. travel at all. I think it's just something you do. I mean, I was a um, I was a show off, and so that's that's swank, you know, just entertain. I'm an entertainer, really. I think people are just long to entertain. You want to make people laugh, or you want to tell stories. I think if I hadn't been an actor, I would have liked to have been a teacher, because I love literature. And um, it's it's hard. You look back over your life. You just are. It, things just are. I've had never had a plan. I've never had an ambition. I just drift along, and if stuff happens, you kind of do it. You know. So do you think it was early days that you thought maybe acting for me? Because it's not a career that seems, there's no easy path. You know, it's not like to become a lawyer. You go and you do these steps and then you apply and you, you do hard steps. Yes. And then you're still not guaranteed. That's it. I mean, you're guaranteed if you're a plumber or an electrician. That's true. Those are sensible things to do. Um, and always needed. Always needed. Beef, booze and boxes. That's the other thing. So either become a vittler or build coffins and sell drink. I don't know. Um, but as an actor, it's the only gambling. I don't like gambling, but I love gambling with my life. I love not knowing what happens. I can't stand knowing what I'm going to do next year. I couldn't bear it. Which is, ins- well, it's strange I think a lot of people me, are yes. like that. No, well, I think a lot of people are like that. I never owned a house until I was 40, rented. And this, pa- and this passion for owning I can understand. Do you think it. it's a new thing? No, it's not. It's because the only it's the only way you can make money is because all property is pushed up all the time, all the time. So everybody's mm. frantic to mm. have something which makes money, makes money, makes money. Yeah. But when I came up to London in the swinging sixties, money was considered very vulgar. You never talked about money, and if anybody had money, quietly they'd pay for things. If you didn't have money, you'd hold your head high and be at least entertaining and look nice. So this obsession with having money and things like rich lists and showing how much you've spent things by having Chanel written on your clothes or something. It was so alien to those 60s days. So I've still got 60s um, dreams in my head, really. And it would tell me a bit about that that time. Well, it, it's, it's made to look sound much more glamorous than it was and it also much more widespread glamorous. than it was mm. because it was mostly London mm-hmm. and a few you know, cities, Manchester, Liverpool and things, but it didn't really spread across the country. Um, I was a model, so I was then in the, in the thick of it because there was fashion, pop music, rock, you know, rock bands, and things like that. Also, um, hairdressers and photographers were hugely important. Artists and 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 a kind of wild hippieish dream of of a better world where things were shared. That was we all left our doors open, you know. Yeah. We had if you had something, you shared it. 
And that's, that's, that seems, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to have melted away a bit. We're very security conscious. Hence the telephone's always checking out where people are and whether we've got insurance for things. You wouldn't have dreamed of having insurance. That's so true. Well, also, well, you you had a baby very young. Mm-hmm. So did you feel the pressures to be financially secure in that sense? Or did that not matter because there was that community around? No, with the, no. well, I mean, when you've got your own child, you should look after it. Um, and so I knew that, and and I then every all all the money I got was to make our flat safe, and uh, I mean you know with enough food for Jamie, and I had to go on working, so I had no pair girl who was really like a sister because I was only twenty one, twenty two, twenty three, so it's quite young. So no pair girl of eighteen or nineteen would be like a younger sister, mm-hmm. and um, they were t- just adorable, and we had we we got by on not very much money. I did The New Avengers, which was a big television show, mm-hmm. which made, made sort of made my name. That's an odd thing to say, but I was 30 when I did that. Did uh, that at the time I'm, feel quite old? I mean, I'm only 27, but I feel like 30, I'm, that's me starting out. Hopefully it's going up, but... Not really. No, it wasn't old, but I mean, um, I've been working as an actress from 21 to about 29, Done lots of things, done movies and plays and Coronation Street and Dracula and shows in the West End and things. But the new adventure is the one which got which got my name remembered, and it had no money attached to it, but it had a name attached to it. And then after that, I sort of then worked pretty solidly from then on. Let's talk about some of your big roles. So. Um, there was Purdy. And that surprises me that there wasn't that financial element because it became so successful. But well, do you think no, that was they just, just didn't pay was? me or Gareth. No, we were just very, very, very underpaid because we were signed on for five years. The first two years were that. Second year, that. Third and fourth years, I could have bought a small country. But only <laughs> they knew they were going to stop after two years. So they knew yes. they could get us at rock bottom. Goodness. Okay. So. Then you come on to captivate the nation with your role as Patsy Stone and absolutely fabulous. That was a great, a long time later, but yes, that was wonderful. I've seen the clips and I I would love to go back and actually sink my teeth into the entire series because you're so different. Obviously, you're an actor and you're you're acting and it's a role, but there's a real humour and warmth. And also you're watching your character and you're thinking, she's a little bit unlikable at times. You know, there's things that she's saying that you're oh, thinking, they were ghastly. Oh, no, but Adina and Patsy were vile. I mean, that was the whole point of it. It was a satire, a very high satire on the fashion world who took it extremely well and loved it. But they were just utterly repellent women. I mean, there's nothing to commend either of them. They were completely ghastly. So it's very yes. funny. To be, they were funny. But the thing is, it was funny. And if things are funny, it works. Mm. And Jennifer's a very brilliant writer and Ruby Wax used to chip in a bit. Um, and she chose, she cast it very well with June Whitfield and Jane Horrocks, Julius Wilder as well. And so we were the five main kind of core bits, but everybody who came in, it was, I mean, it was magic to work on, really, really funny. Mm. We did it live in front of an audience every Friday night, Wow! which is tough because it's a proper show. We didn't, we tried to get it right all the time, very occasionally. We, something went wrong, we, we laughed, but hardly ever. Because doing comedy is a very serious, sounds odd, serious business when you're doing it. When you're sorting it out, we cried with laughter in rehearsals. But when you're doing it in front of an audience, it's not up to the actors to laugh. It's yes. up to the others to laugh. And, and to hold divine. that while they are laughing. Yeah, but you, if, if you, if, I mean, comedy, if you're doing comedy, you, you know how to ride it and when 
when to come in. But it, you, it's different acting in front of an audience, but on television. You're, you're first, you're the servant of the screen rather than the audience. But your instinct is with the audience because to entertain an audience. So it's a different, it's a balancing act, you know. Do you think things like that still exist today? And does it feel like a shame we don't do more in, in front of an audience? Well, there's a there's a tremendous energy that comes from having mm. to work in front of an audience because you're so frantic to get it right. We had no rehearsal. Read through on Monday, kind of rehearsed on Tuesday, block it on Wednesday, do outside broadcast on Thursday and live in front of the people. For half an hour of comedy and comedy's far the hardest thing to do. Yes. Drama and uh, tragedy, come low down on the list compared with drama, with, with comedy, because comedy, if they don't laugh, you're dead. Whereas in drama, it can be tense, it can be silence and nothing. Mm. In tragedy, you don't even expect people to cry. They can again be just silence. But comedy, if there are no laughs, it's t it's not, not funny. When your career choice is acting and you're also modelling, there is a, a pressure to look a certain way. I was also writing. Writing. I stopped modelling when I was 21. Wow. So I stopped it and came And how easy was it to transition from Very, very hard in those days because in those days um, models were considered the lowest of the low. And so as an actress, they, you're supposed to have gone to drama school, supposed to have gone, done your 42 weeks in rep or whatever. So it was, it was, a, it was a hard hill to climb. But I just took everything that was offered, scrabbled my way in. I've always thought of it, Kellyanne, as going round a house and seeing which windows are open thinking I could get in there later and finding a window and gemming it open and getting in through the back door. So everything I've done has come through the back door because I didn't have any training. I would refuse to go to university, wouldn't, didn't want any of that. Did you feel, because you'd come from the modelling and it was difficult to get in, did you feel maybe uh, that you were cast as perhaps in oh, always, of course, No, you're always cast one. as pretty. Well, you are, you're cast as a pretty girl because if you're 22 or 3 and you're pretty, you're a pretty girl. You're not going to play... A woman of forty-five who has three children in Birmingham. I mean, mm. that's just stupid. You're, you're typecast from the second you're born, really. So you can change that kind of. In that people, that's why people are so shocked by Patsy because you go, oh, but she's not like that. They forget that acting is acting. It's pretending to be somebody mm. else, pretending to be somebody else. But you're caught up in this. You, yes. you're stuck in this. It's so unless you change it hugely, you're going to look like you do. Mm. I went to an all-girls school, and I felt. Uh, that was in my secondary school years until uh, I was 16 and then I went to a mixed school and when I was at the all-girls school I felt very much the onus was on to um, do very well there was a lot of competition academically but because it was only girls it was never really about aesthetics it didn't really play into it and then when I, when I went into the real world at 16 and suddenly realized oh actually if I make more effort I perhaps have a better social standing or, or learning all those things that hadn't really been available to me. And I'm asking that because you went to an all-girls school. If you realised perhaps that beauty did play a part in in how you get ahead. Not a school, no. School, we just looked like gorillas. We were hopeless. <laughs> but no, but modelling, then you go, oh, modelling, I can see what they do. And then everybody had their, we all had eyelashes. You play the game. You just, you just jump into it. Just do what's necessary. Mm -hmm. Do what's necessary at the time. If you're if you're trekking across the Himalayas, you don't worry about your beauty. But if you're at modelling in a London photographic studio with David Bailey, you look beautiful. So I don't think you want to get too caught up with things, you know. Change, switch and s you can slip around. We're not compelled to be anything mm. except civil and compassionate. Without those things, I find people very dreary. 
So people who are critical, very critical of other people, I find boring. There was a survey done recently by Radio Times and we did it. It was called the Screen Test Awards and they were looking at television and they said that TV is getting kinder. But I think what they're saying is things like reality TV are becoming kinder. We're less looking at screens and trying to tear someone apart almost. And do you think that's a part of do you think I, it's a society? I'm not really quali- I don't really know no- enough about reality television shows, unless, of course, First Dates is one. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but which, I, is, I which is a nice show, isn't it? I think it's sweet when they do get lucky and like each other. That's that's sweet. But quite a lot of the time, it's it's cruelty, actually. And I, I'm ashamed of watching it. And when S- Stephen and I had watched the other night An Apprentice, he said, I don't think we can watch this anymore. Because either it's been edited to make these people look catastrophically useless mm. and vain. Or they've been cast. Or they really are it? that, in which case it's cruelty on the part of the television to have mm. picked out people who are such obvious losers. <laughs> you know, and that's cruelty. That's mockery. So it's lazy. It's lazy of me to have said those are favourite programmes. They're not really favourite programmes. I like I like things that take you out. I like... I like things that can take you away. So we mm. watch a lot of old films. We watch a lot of movies. And of course, with BAFTA just brewing up, and I'm on, like a million other people are, on the j- judging thing of, of BAFTA, which means you watch lots and lots of films. Mm. So you get to watch lots of films. And more films in the foreign language. I like foreign things. Mm. When we were young, also, we watched a lot of, fil- lot of French films. There were French cinemas in London. The Paris Pullman and uh, Academy One and Two, which showed only foreign films, and we all saw foreign films all the time. Yes. We've become a, a little bit insular, and of course, since leaving the European Union, we've become much worse, and we're so clouded with our cent- centrality, isolated mm. m- mentally as well. And there's real beauty in French cinema. I remember growing up, I did French, and that was only because in, in A levels, um, and that was only because I I wanted to be French. I wanted that chicness, and I yeah. fell in love with the French cinema we were watching at yeah. school. And and there is a real beauty in it that that felt kind of other, but also perhaps still slightly accessible. If I mm. drank coffee and smoked cigarettes, I know. And the French also made their films. We in the English-speaking languages, you make films, American makes films for America and hopes the rest of the world likes it. But Australians and British and the English-speaking nations make films for they hope the world, which is impossible. The French make films for France. Yes. They don't care if anybody watches them or not. They want France to see them. Yes. So they speak in French and do it the French way, and I find that absolutely irresistible. Can we talk about changes in mm. the industry? So since you started out, what you've areas that you've noticed the most change in, areas that are still the same? I think one area is behind the cameras. A lot of in the old olden olden days, women on a film floor would be continuity, who are now called script editors, and uh, makeup artists maybe. And all the rest were men. All the rest were men. And now we have women editors, women cameramen. Sound. I mean, some of the things in on big film studios are literally men are stronger than women, mm-hmm. and therefore some of the things men do, some of the grips and things are better to be men because they're literally physically stronger. But I've seen a great, a great broadening of how many jobs women have. Mm-hmm. I've seen a great broadening um, in the work for uh, older women because older men have always had work. Mm-hmm. Spencer Tracy and people never stop working, but older women, the cutoff yes. was about. 40. I did a film in 1969, I think, with Ava Gardner, who was then only early 40s, 42 or something. 
And she was making a film which was her comeback film because, she, you know, now she was old. I mean, she looked ravishing. She had a sort of 18-inch waist still. She looked sensational. But she was old and making a comeback. Now, that doesn't happen now. And no. now you can see from the kind of, A, the, the marvellous actresses who are around in, in the world um, are still there and still being marvellous. So you'd be a fool to drop them and and try always to find somebody new. But beauty will always have a place on screen, always. People will always look for somebody gorgeous like Margot Robbie. Like you say, it's it's that making also of those women and to give them roles. It's also about portraying how women are in real life. It's I think perhaps there were, was an era, and, and that's not for all roles, but felt we were excluded from our experiences of, of aging or seeing different types of women, not just mother yeah. unfleshed, you know, just 2D mother, 2D girlfriend, mm -hmm. and actually letting great actresses sink their teeth into a 3D dimension or 3D mm -hmm. reality of of women's lived experiences. I know it's it's dragged its heels this one a long time because men were allowed to be men with all the complexities and women were always a pretty secretary mm. or a panic-stricken mother or no no you know a hard-hearted aunt or a cozy granny i mean they seem to be terribly limited areas mm -hmm. to work in but now they're beginning to make films about people which is what we all want really yes another thing that's obviously changed uh, massively since the me too movement but Actually, I'm going to preface that. I grew up in an era where nudity felt very normal on screen. Mm -hmm. And my parents, I think, were always slightly shocked at how normalised it was. And it's only as an adult that I'm starting to look at things and think, is that necessary? Or I don't I don't like that in, for example, and I use this example a lot, in Game of Thrones, you've got a brothel scene and all of the men are fully clothed or with armour and all of the women are entirely naked. And it feels um, that the only necessity of that is is to have breasts on screen, for mm. example. What do you think? But also, how important do you think it is that we have things like intimacy coordinators? I've uh, I've always, and it's never left me, I'm bored stiff with sort of sexy love scenes on tele on screen I, or on stage. I, they bore me rigid. So I kind of have to whistle or just wait till they're finished. Mm. Um, they're everywhere now. But, uh, uh, but a, lot of, a lot of nudity, uh, you see, as an actor, you've got the audience with you, believing in your character the second you take your clothes off people look at you the actor and what your attributes are what your breasts are like what mm. your gentles are like they look at you so you've immediately lost the character you've spent so long building up yeah. because they're looking at you so i'm i don't I can't see the point. Anyway, people love it. There's a great peep show element. There's a great playground element. Pull your pants down, you know, let's see what you've got kind of thing. And that still goes on. And intimacy things, I'm sure, I mean, you know, I'd cut all those scenes altogether. <laughs> slow things down. And they're rude. They're horrible. I don't watch people on the lavatory. I don't watch people in bed when they're making love. I don't have to see them. So I don't know why they're there. Unless something happens and during it, a dagger's stuck through the neck or somebody manages to put see where the tattoo is on somebody's bottom. Unless there's an actual reason for it. If you're just watching bonking, I can't bear it. And it feels almost, and this is from an outside perspective, but it feels almost unfair sometimes on the actors that that feels like now part, and, and maybe has always been. And it's always been. Part and parcel with the job. I know, but it's, you know, it's the old thing, you know, do you want to do it? You can always say, no, I don't want to do this. And, and you, then you, you might lose not the get part. the part. Yeah, we mm. do, you lose the part. 
So but that's okay if you don't want to do it. So you can't keep saying, well, I'll do it and I hate it and I don't think it's right and I think it's wrong, but I'll do it because I want money. Get money another way. Yeah. Which is why all actors should have a second string to their bow, you know. Serve in a pub, write, do something, play a violin, learn mm. to be a plumber, have something. Because acting, what is it, something like 98% of all actors are out of work at any given time. Yes. Massive. It's huge. Also, when you've had such a career as yours, another thing that people talk about often as actors is the fame element and finding that can be difficult or intrusive. When you had a career like yours, there must be moments where perhaps fame becomes overwhelming or have you always just thought... No, because I'm not that kind of famous. Because I walk about in the streets and I take the tube and I shop in the supermarket and queue at the post office and things and people know me and also because of my travel shows, people know me as Joanna. So they talk to me as a friend. But when we did the new Avengers and I realized that people could recognize me, it was like having, sounds a bit dramatic, having your leg amputated. You go, I would rather have had my leg, but now I haven't. I'll have a false leg and I'll work with it. Once you realize your anonymity is gone forever, Mm -hmm. deal with it how you can. And my way to deal with it was to make it something. So when people approached me, I would never be cross with them because otherwise your life is destroyed. Mm. So if when somebody comes up, which they do now, can I have a selfie and things? And you go, yes, how lovely. A, it'll make their day happier because they get a nice selfie. B, you won't have been a total bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And it would have been fine. And you find it's okay. You find it's okay. So you have to learn to live with it, learn to live with it how you will, or you're haunted. If you're afraid people will recognize you, your life is, your days are shadowed with Mm. fear. So don't don't be afraid, just it's there. We're only well known because our faces are on the screen, which is where they're supposed to be. Yes. Like news readers who are also famous, people mm. who tell you the weather, they're famous. Mm. I mean, famous means recognizable. Yes. Also without a phone, I guess maybe you're more switched off or you're able to feel more of a distance to people tweeting or... Oh, so I don't ever do that. No social media, nothing. Don't do any of that. <laughs> There's no point in it. Look, if you want to live up to... If you want to react all the time, I'm, I write and I, you know, like I like paintings and drawings and reading fine work and stuff like that. It sounds sort of snooty, but what I don't want is to be shuffling through the gutter all the time. <laughs> What's the point? Wake up in the morning and see if somebody said horrible things about you. No. no. If you haven't heard them, it doesn't hurt you. So true. So. Right. Let's come on to talk about conversations from a long marriage, which is beloved yeah. by our readers and listeners. Um, Jan Etherington wrote me an email mm. before this, and she explained about writing this part for you. And, and I loved what she put, and I'm going to read it out. She said, she felt you epitomized a long married couple still fizzing with love for music, wine and each other. Unlike, and these are Jan's words, the usual portrayal of older women in the media in a coma or a care home, tetchy divorcees or ditzy nanas. What does this show teach us about age, about love and about It's really about marriage. It teaches us more about marriage. And a lot of people I've met say it's uncanny how she seems to have mirrored. People have said, is she listening in on us? (laughs) Has she got a microphone (laughs) set in our floorboards or something? Because a lot of the small bickering or conversations they have or ideas they have, these are half-hour shows between two people only, which Mm. is me and Roger Allen. We're never named, but we're the married couple who've been married for a long time. They've had ups and downs in their um, married, but they live a fairly normal married life. They love each other. 
They've got friends who are sometimes enchanting, sometimes irritating. They li live an ordinary kind of fairly humdrum existence. But her genius is actually finding out the sort of the sweet spots in marriage, which seem to exist in very, very many marriages. So a lot of people listen because it sounds so like their own lives. And I found myself, I was lucky enough to have a preview for series five, and I found myself really giggling along as I was, as I was pottering around listening. And I just, I feel that perhaps the beauty of it is also in these small moments or the things that we find ourselves getting annoyed at with our partners mm. or the things that actually bring us back together and, and our own neuroses almost and yes. how that other person just allows you to be you, realises you're going to react in said way yeah. and, and loves you because of it. I know. And in spite of it sometimes. And, and in another uh, another sort of addition to this is the fact that it's on radio mm. because people... They know, and they might even envisage me and Roger Allen because we're both quite well-known faces. But actually, you're listening to these two and what their living room looks like or when they wave goodbye to friends at the garden gate or when they let the dog out, when they climb the stairs. You imagine, you, you make their house. Mm. When they're in a car driving somewhere, you're sort of in their car with them. And I think, you know, somebody once said radio is best because it has the best views. And you make them up in your head. You make up the scenery. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very valuable and stops people becoming bored. And I'm sure if, if we'd been, if it was us two on screen for, this is series five, people might have thrown stones at us by now and said we had enough. But you don't get bored with voices as swiftly as you do with faces. Well, series five for radio as well. It's mm. really impressive. It's lovely. What do you think about the show? Or what do you think it is about the show that, that makes people keep coming back? There's something sweet about it. It's funny. It's lighthearted. It's got quite a few profound things. There are, there's love and loss in it. There's loss in it. Um, there's regret, there's a feeling of looking back. Both of them realise they're getting older, as a lot of our listeners on Radio 4 at that time of night, 6.30 in the evening, do. And I'm, you know, I, I'm older than Roger, but although I feel young, by years you know you're getting older. And that's where a lot of people are, because a lot of people of my age were children of the 60s, um, kind of baby boomers after the war. And we all know we're getting older, but we don't feel older in our heads. And these two don't feel older in their heads, mm -mm. but things go wrong. Somebody to step back or has to do this or take pills or, you know, these small human quandaries that they get into and somehow scramble out of. But behind it all is sweet love, which is very nice. Yeah. How do you create that relationship with Roger? On Easy radio? peasy. I, know you I mean, masses of women come up to me and say, can I marry Roger? I'm like, no. <laughs> A, he's married to Rebecca, but B, I'm first in line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it always feels that when you listen, that even in the moments where it is a bit tense, we were arguing, that in that studio, there is such a warmth and an energy and mm. I, I can imagine you all kind of smiling and having lots of fun and it'd be quite joyous time. It's lovely because in the in the studio, which is not very much bigger than this studio we're sitting in, there are microphones where we are and then behind the glass is everybody else. So it's only Roger and me there. They hear us obviously and we can have feedback and talk to. But we're such friends. Now. We've been doing this now. This is the fifth year. It's year because we only do six little episodes a year. So this is five years. This is a long yeah. time. We've been friends and Jan's written for us with us in mind. 
and the same producer, Claire, and the same, we go to the same studios. Wilfredo is the same technician. So it's like a little tiny family who gathers once a year um, with these beautiful new scripts to do. The radio editor, Radio Times, said Mm. that Roger apparently gasped at something in this script for Mm. Series 5. Now, without giving too much Mm. away... Can you tease potentially what that was? No. If Roger gasped, I wouldn't say a thing. <laughs> no. I mean, I think I know. And it's a it's a bit it comes with a bit of a blindsider, sort of on episode six of this series. Well, I think that's enough of a teaser. Yeah. Our listeners yeah. to be yeah. frantically trying to find out. It comes out of um, the blue. What do you think the future of the radio drama is? I, I hope endless. I think the radio, the afternoon radio play I love because they're so different. They're so wildly different. They always last three quarters of an hour, you know, unless it's a series, in which case they alert you to it. But usually it's a completed play in three quarters of an hour. And it's we all love having, at least I think most of us love having stories read to us. Or while you can do something, whether it's peeling potatoes or ironing or doing householdy chores or whether you're sick in bed or whether you're it's it it's good to listen to something while you're doing something so i think long live the radio play and this is the only way you can get playwrights is to have people who can write one-off plays Mm. because if you're trying to write for television they almost always want a series so we're in danger of losing tom stoppard and david hares of the future Mm -hmm. Christopher Hampton's, because they could write a single play and it would be put on as a television play or something. Mostly now, that's not done. And we've got to keep that alive. Because if everything has to go to series, it's a bit level off. It's a bit too mundane, a bit too leveling off. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, what do you think, well, just to finish up, what, do you, what would your tip be for a successful long marriage? Adrian Edmondson had the answer to that. Don't get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite funny. I think respect <laughs> your partner. Respect them. Don't marry them if you don't respect them. Mm. Don't expect to change people. Respect them for what they do and who they are. And treat them as the most important person in the world at all times. At all times. And be courteous. It's back to sort of very old human things. Don't take people for granted. Look out for them. Um there's a lot of pressure nowadays to look in on yourself and see how you're feeling and how whether I'm happy with that and what I do and what I, I this is this is the certain way to unhappiness. Mm. It's the only sure way of getting unhappy immediately is to think about yourself. So think out about other people, think about your partner, and then think about the outside world. Have shared interests, I think. And if you can share their interest and get them to be interested in yours, that's lovely because then occasionally We have another friend of mine said, we don't like sausages. And I love that sort of we. (laughs) The royal we for themselves. I love it. (laughs) Well, Joanna Romney, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure, Kellyanne, talking to you. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with Stephen Fry or my interview with the man behind Love Actually, Notting Hill and About Time, screenwriter Richard Curtis. Both can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. Please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>